We will be considering the entire chapter this morning. Uh, please, if you are able to remain standing for the reading of God's word, and if you would also uh, be a little kind to me this morning as I attempt to read through some of the names here, uh, there are going to be 70 names. So be kind to me. This is the word of the Lord. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the Lord, or to the God of his father, Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, and their little ones, and their wives, and their wagons, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanak and Palu and Hezron, or Hezron and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shual, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tula and Puva and Eob and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sherid and Elon and Jahil, the sons of Leah, who she bore to Jacob in Padam Aram with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Zipion and Haggai and Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Arodi and Ariali, the sons of Asher, Iman and Ishba and Ishvi and Beriah and their sister Sarah and their son, the sons of Beriah, Heber and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. And she bore to Jacob these 16 persons, the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Now to Benjamin in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh, and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of Onan, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, and Becher, and Ashbel, Gera, and Naaman, Ihi, and Rosh, Mupin, or Muppin, and Huppim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob there, were fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazreel, and Guni, and Jazir, and Shalim. These are the sons of Bilham, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonged to Jacob who came to Egypt. His direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen and came, then he came, then they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. Since I have seen your face, that you are still alive, 
Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, you, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. This is the reading of God's holy inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that your word is true, that your word is eternal, uh, that your word will go forth and that it will not return void. We pray, God, that your word would penetrate our hearts this morning and that you would further sanctify us by your word and by the spirit that lives within us. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through uh, the book of Genesis. The last time that we were here in the book of Genesis, we heard Jacob, the patriarch, saying, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The son that Jacob believed was surely dead was in fact the governor of all of the land of Egypt. And now here is this 130-year-old man, this 130-year-old patriarch with his heart and his faith revived at the sight of the magnificent Egyptian wagons. And he packs his belongings and begins his journey down, down, down to Egypt. This is where we pick up in, in verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And this morning we would like to look at and travel along with this patriarch, Jacob, as he makes his journey from Canaan to Egypt. And with God's help, we will examine five stages in this journey this morning. Number one, Jacob's devotion to God. Number one, Jacob's devotion to God. Verse one, uh, 1b, Jacob, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. It's very telling that the first thing that we read when we read this chapter about Israel is that he comes to Beersheba at the end of verse 1. And we read that he offers sacrifices unto the God of his father, Isaac. The place Beersheba, very significant. Beersheba was right on the border of the promised land. It was, if you can imagine in your mind's eye, the most southern point of the promised land. It is at the very bottom. It is at the the exit door, if you will. You've often heard the phrase in scriptures, from Dan to Beersheba, haven't you? That is from the very north to the very south. And here is Jacob at the very south, at the uh, very exit of the land of promise. We have heard God say to Jacob in chapter 35, This land to which I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I give to you and to your seed. I give this land. And here is Jacob, right on the door, right at the border of the promised land, uh, the most southern place of the promised land. 
And this place has such great religious significance as well. It is the place that God spoke of His covenant mercy and faithfulness. It is the place where Abraham, where he was in chapter 21 when God called Abraham to plant a grove there in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. It was in that place in Beersheba, where most likely Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis heard God saying to him, Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, Isaac, and offer him up on Mount Moriah. It was also the place where Isaac built an altar, built an altar to the Lord and called upon his name in Genesis 26. It was the place where Isaac had lived until he was a very old man. He was buried there. It was the place of the scene of the crime where Jacob stole the blessing, the birthright of his older brother Esau. And now, here is old Jacob, hearing that his son is still alive, going down to Egypt, but stopping in Beersheba. For the very last time in his life, and making a sacrifice, not just to God, notice, but the scriptures say and emphasize to the God of his father, Isaac, And the phrase is meant to point to the the covenant that God has made with his fathers, Abraham, and to Isaac. But it's important to note, Jacob is on his way to see, he's on his way down to see Joseph, the son of his love, uh, the very apple of his eye, the son whom he has not seen in 22 years, the son whom he He believed was dead. And he has found out that he is alive. What would you do? If you thought someone, one of your children, someone that you loved was dead. Only to find out that they are alive. Wouldn't you make all haste to go to them immediately? Wouldn't you go without any restroom breaks, uh, without any stopping at In-N-Out? or McD- You would go straight to them. But here is Jacob, Israel, the man who is carrying the covenant of God on his way down. But before he goes into this foreign land, he stops. He stops here at Beersheba. He won't go one step outside of the promised land unless that step is ordered by God. He won't leave. He he is living out Proverbs chapter 3, acknowledging God in all of His ways so that God would direct His path. This was a great profession of faith as he leaves. He's at the door of exiting one land and entering into another. He's exiting at the door of exiting a a promised land that has been covenantally given to him and to his, his descendants and entering an idolatrous land, a pagan land. But before he takes one step further, he calls upon the name of the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And he gives a sacrifice, an offering there. He offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And many commentators agree that this sacrifice, it could have been a, a variety of sacrifices that, that, that were offered at this particular time. It could have been a sacrifice for forgiveness of sins or a sacrifice of pardon. 
Jacob could have been offering a sacrifice of pardon. What did he need forgiveness for? He was leaving the promised land. He was leaving the land that God had promised to the Israelites. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if it was not just that he was because he was leaving the land, but maybe it was because of the way in which he left the land behind. Meaning this, could the children of Israel leave Canaan and have the Canaanites say, please don't leave. You have been such a great blessing to us here. Could the Israelites leave the land of Canaan and say to the Canaanites, I've held nothing back from you concerning the whole counsel of God. I've been a faithful witness to you. Could the children of Israel say, you are witnesses, and God is also our witness, as Paul the Apostle would say later, uh, that we have wholly lived before you, that we have blamelessly lived and conducted ourselves before you in a righteous way. Uh, may I say to you, they did not have that witness. Uh, maybe the the sacrifice of pardon was because Jacob did not leave the land better than he found it. They were not faithful witnesses. They were bad witnesses. And Israel will continue to be an unfaithful witness to nations around them. And so there is an offering of sacrifice for pardon. He was offering a sacrifice for the pardon of his sin, for the pardon of his family's sin, for the pardon of his people's sin. They had not left Canaan any better than when they first arrived. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if God were, remove, were to remove us from 308 Yampa and take us somewhere else in this city or elsewhere, what would the people in this neighborhood, this industrial street, what would they say about us if we were, by God's providence, moved somewhere else? Would our absence make any difference at all in this part of the city? What about you? In your family. Are you leaving your family. Better off when you leave. Is there an aroma. Of godliness in your family. When you are there. Or are you an aroma of death. Commentators say this could be an offering. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. And Jacob has many reasons to be thankful, doesn't he? Benjamin is alive. Joseph is alive. All of my sons are alive. None have been left behind. He knows what has happened to his brother Esau. He has departed. He knows what has happened to his great uncle Ishmael. He has departed. But when he looks around at his family... When he looks around at his 12 sons, they are all there. They are all in his household. They are all, his sons at least, following God. They are all walking in the covenant promises of God. Don't you want that for your family? Don't you want to be able to look at all of your family when you are gathered on holidays and say they're all here? They're all worshiping God. But wouldn't you love it more if you could say, they're all here. You look around and you can see Brandon. You can see Brian. You can see Chris. Uh, you can see Michael. And you can see all of your family members. Just, they're all here. They're all worshiping God. Well, Jacob had much to be thankful for, didn't he? 
All of his family were there. Judah almost walked away from a time, for a time, but God brought him back. Joseph was a slave for a time, but God brought him back. All of his sons are there. God has been better to Jacob than Jacob ever deserved. God has been better to you than you deserve. Oh, when we have times of prayer and at the very end we say, what, now what can we thank God with you for? Every, every person should be standing at their feet and say, let me be the first. Let me be the first to say why I am so thankful to God. Let me testify. If you won't say it, I'll say how good God has been to me. I'm alive. I've got breath in my body. But it's not just physical breath. I've got spiritual breath in my body. I can see Him. I know Him. Praise be to God. We should count our blessings, saints. We should look, you you should go home today and one of your homework assignments should be sit down and write about all of the ways that God has been better to you than you have been to Him. Oh, we should be thankful. Matthew Henry says, be thankful for beginnings of mercy. Count your blessings. It could be a sacrifice of pardon, a one of thanksgiving, but maybe even a petition for God's presence in this new land. He's at the door, isn't he? Exiting one, entering another. God be with me. Exiting one, entering another. God be with me. He is going to this place and as he goes, he wants to know God is with him. He wants to know that there is no place that he will go where God will not still be his shepherd. He does not want God, or he does not want to lean on his own understanding as he enters this new land. He wants to trust in, to depend on God. Saints, do you? When you're entering, uh, exiting one and entering another, is your prayer, God be with me? Or do you just kick down the door and say, let's go? When you're exiting one and entering another, God be with me. Do you ask each day, when you arise each morning, God be with me. God give me grace, give me wisdom. Are you mindful that you cannot... That you should not go any place without the knowledge of knowing that God is with you. I'm driving to school. God be with me. I'm going to work. God be with me. I'm entering into a home of a stranger. God be with me. Plenty of times. We go places more than we acknowledge without saying, God, be with me. We assume it, don't we? We assume that everything's just going to be okay. The places that we would avoid, the people that we would avoid if we would only pray, oh God, be with me. And not just the usual places, the usual sinful places and the usual sinful people that you and I might be thinking of, but dear ones, even even the most... Uh, even the most common places. Oh, God be with me. When was the last time you prayed, Oh, God be with me when you walked into a gas station? How many robberies take place and there's just people who happen to be there? The wrong place, if you will, the wrong time. Oh, God be with me. God be with me. But even those places that are distracting, that we would avoid if we prayed, God be with me. Even those places that that distract you and I from our upward call in Christ Jesus. Those places that simply waste our time, waste our efforts in vain pursuits. 
those places that you often ask yourself, what, 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 why, why, is, why was I even there? What am I doing here? This is not who I am. The last possible sacrifice could be a, a sacrifice of consultation. That is, Jacob is asking God, give me direction. Not only am I asking that you be with me, but I'm also asking that you guide me and direct me. Because sometimes we go places, don't we? And we say, God, be with me. And we go to places where God would never direct us to. So not only are we asking God, direct me, or God, be with me, but direct me. Should I stay in the land of promise, Lord? Should I leave this place? What's your will? This may be confusing. What do you mean? What is your will for my life? It's obvious. Joseph is alive. I'll go to him. Wouldn't that seem like the most obvious thing that God would want? Will of God for my life. Joseph's alive. I'll go. It's It's obviously what God wants me to do. But Jacob has the spiritual sense to beseech the Lord, to call upon God's name, to come to God and to bring his fallen wisdom to the one who has infinite, perfect wisdom, the one who has ordered his life from beginning to end. Uh, We often overestimate our own understanding, don't we? What if God said to Joseph or Jacob, don't go down to Egypt? What would he have done? His son is alive, but don't go. All the circumstances are clearly pointing to Egypt. It seems clear he has the command of Pharaoh, go get them. The wish of Joseph, come father. The desire within himself to see his son. Famine is in the land. Resources are in Egypt. All the circumstances are saying, go. But Jacob does not presume to know the will of God. Nor does he presume to be a perfect interpreter of God's providences. Sometimes we look and we say, well, here's a line that's connecting there. And there's a line that's connecting there. And there's a line that's connecting. This must be what God wants me to do. So I'm going to go that way. And though all the lines may connect, Jacob still goes to God and says, but is this what you're saying? Is this what you're doing? What's your will for my life? We look at circumstances and we ought to. We look at providences and we should observe them. We should see where the lines are connecting. But dear ones, we meet, we need much more than connecting lines. We need much more than just observing providence. We must come to God. Seek His guidance. Seek His will. George Lawson says, Israel, Jacob, would have rather died without seeing Joseph in this world then go to see him without a warrant from God, whom he loved more than all of his sons and more than all of his life. Joseph was dear to Jacob, but God was dearer to Jacob. What about you, saints? Is there something, someone that you love more than God that would cause you to bypass the will of God so that you could satisfy your own desires? Jacob said, not me.
We have to seek God in all that we do, in big decisions, but even in the day-to-day decisions that we make. Seek God's blessing. Seek God's will. Uh, How often, dear ones, do we seek the will of God for our lives? Think about this. Something has happened, and this is what must be done. And while it may be true, whatever that thing is, that this is the normal course of action that normally we take. Stop. And ask God. Be with me and guide my path. Even though this is normally what takes place. Stop. I'm saying this because there's a myriad of things that we can put into that this Someone has died. I lost my job. I got into a car accident. You see all of the normal things that every single day that we just kind of assume, here's what we must do. Yes, we must. But you first must ask God to be with you. Seek his will. Maybe there's a different path. You don't know if you haven't asked. May I encourage you in this first long point. Don't presume to know the will of God when different circumstances and providences arise. We know the will of God in terms of doctrine. How a believer must live in light of doctrine. But we must presume that we do not have the ability to perfectly interpret circumstances and providences that arise in our lives. Seek God's face. Seek his will. Ask him to make his will and his way clear to you. And may I say to you from the scriptures, if you choose a path that is contrary to the scriptures, contrary to those things that God has explicitly and clearly commanded, you have not chosen the will of God for your life. Case in point, uh, my family, has someone has passed away. It often happens, doesn't it? And there is going to be a funeral. It will be on a certain day. I have the ability to come back home and to be with my family at the church, but I'm going to stay gone and miss the Lord's day. Did you even ask God about that? Well, it's my family. It's a temporal family. There's an eternal one here. That seems rather harsh. Well, I need you to ask yourself, when you begin to order those who are priority in your life, is church, the body of Christ, last on the list of those who you most love in your life? Let me say to you from the scriptures, God doesn't say so. God says it is him and then his church. That's harsh, isn't it? That's a, that's a very large pill for some of us to swallow. But it is word from God. There are going to be times, and I remember this from our brother Louis, where his family would have things on the Lord's day that they would do. And Louis would say, I'm going to be at church, so you're going to have to plan around it. Maybe I can come during the break, but I'm going to be at church So therefore, you're going to miss me at some point or another because my gathering with the saints is more important than this gathering. There are some in this church, my family included, who have moved our uh, Easter celebration that we normally did for the kids from Sunday, the Lord's Day, to Saturday, the day before. So that the kids don't miss out on something, but that we don't miss the gathering of the saints. Let me say again and close this point because I'm spending way too much time on it. If you're choosing something when something arises that is contrary to God's word, you have made the wrong decision. Therefore, God is not with you and God is not directing your path. You are with you and you are directing your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Second point. 
God's direction. Verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. When you prayerfully seek direction from the Lord, the Lord will not be silent. He will answer you. God spoke to Israel in visions in the night. God will not give you visions. God has given you his full revelation, his word. This is the only time, though, in the story of Joseph, not the story of Jacob, but in the story of Joseph that we read God speaking in this way. This is the last time that God will speak for the next 400 years. God will be silent for the next 400 years. The next time that God will speak, he will speak to a man that he makes himself visible to in a bush that burns but is not consumed. Moses at the burning bush. It was a very significant time And here, in this great moment, when Israel is leaving the promised land and going into the land of Egypt, God speaks to Israel. And God says, Jacob, Jacob. Notice that God does not call him Israel. Anytime that God referred to Jacob as Jacob, It was because there was maybe the potential for Jacob to revert back to the old ways of Jacob. It was like when the Lord Jesus Christ called Peter, Simon, Simon. You are acting like your old self now, Simon. And the Lord comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, Jacob. You are in the place where you deceived. You are in Beersheba. The place where you stole your father's blessing to your brother. Jacob. Reminding him of who he was and who he is uh, maybe potentially tempted to be once again. And here is Jacob. Being called Jacob. Because he is fearful as he is about to exit one land and enter another. This man of great faith, weak at times. This man of great faith, afraid at times. The life of faith is is that sometimes, isn't it? It's... It's a life that is up some days and down some days, sometimes so strong, and then sometimes so weak, sometimes doubting, and sometimes absolutely certain, sometimes halting, and sometimes able to move mountains. And here is Jacob, and he's afraid. How do we know that he's afraid? Because God commands him not to be afraid. God comes to him in the middle of the night and says, don't be afraid. He's unsure. And we can understand his fear. If we were asked to go somewhere into a foreign land to live somewhere else, we would have fears. He was afraid because he was old and the journey was long. He was afraid because he was leaving the promised land. He was afraid because of the famine. There are many fears in Jacob's life. And he associates Egypt with a place of danger, and rightly so. Remember his grandfather, Abraham, had gone down to Egypt during the famine. His life was threatened there. Isaac was told during a time of famine, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in this land. It's a dangerous place. Stay in the promised land. Could it be that Jacob, here in Beersheba, was reminded of what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15? Most likely, in this very place in Beersheba, God came to Abraham and said to him, Abraham, know for certain 
that your seed will be a stranger in a foreign land. That they will be there for 400 years and they will be afflicted there. Jacob may be fearful, uh, thinking and wondering, is this the beginning of the 400 years? And it was. He was afraid for his family there. What's going to happen to my family in this place of idolatry? Uh, New learning, new treasures, new idolatry, new temptations. Would they be absorbed in Egypt? Would they be able to hold on to the covenant promises of God? Jacob was afraid for himself. He's 130 years old. He's about to die. He's afraid that maybe he won't be put to rest in the land of his fathers, the land of promise. That's where he belongs. He doesn't want to die in a strange place. And it is into that context, into that fear, The word of God comes to Jacob in verse 3 and 4, where God meets Jacob at the point of his fear. Listen to what he says. Verse 3 and 4, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Listen to what he says. For I will make you a great nation there. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Jacob feels weak. Weak with fear. And dear ones, will you notice that God does not say to Jacob, 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 you can do this. He does not say to him, Jacob, you are strong. Jacob, you have power. He does not say to Jacob, you're a mighty man of valor, Jacob. Arise and go. The first thing that he says to him is, don't be afraid. I'm God. I am God, he says. And I am with you. God reminds Jacob that Jacob is the weak one and that God is the strong one. That God is the covenant God. That He is the God of His Father. And He also says, and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. There. Not here. About to exit one land and enter into another. The fear of pushing that door open and God says, I'm your God. Go. And it's in that door, through that door, that I'm going to make you great, not here. He will do what He has promised, not here, but there. In the place that Jacob was afraid to go into. The place that he was afraid that he would shrink into nothing. The place where he was afraid that he would crumble. God says, I will make you a great nation. He's only 70. Only 70 and God is saying, I will make you a great nation there. It's not how. It's not when. It's not where we think that God will do what he does. God has His there. God has His when. God has His how. And all of His promises are surety. They are yes and amen. We often want the humility of the man of God that we admire. But we don't want to go to His there. We often admire the godliness of a woman. But we don't want to go to her there. Her years of pain. His years of suffering. 
her years of heartache and sorrow, his years of affliction. Uh, because it's there that God molds and shapes the man and woman of God. It's in God's there. Oftentimes, God places us in places where we would never place ourselves. So you must go there. For it is there that I will bring forth my plans. God says, and when you go there, I will go down with you. What an amazing promise. He has come to God and said, God, is this your will? Then God says, it is my will. God, will you go with me? I will go with you. You will remember David in the beginnings of his royal reign. He would not lift a finger unless God said so. He would not go to battle unless God said so. And as his story progresses, you see David less and less asking God, Shall I go and will you be with me? And we ultimately know the downfall that led David or led to David's great sin with Bathsheba. What were the beginnings of it, though? The beginnings of it were simply asking God, Is this your will and will you go with me? And here is God responding to Jacob, the man who comes to him in faith. And God says, Yes, it's my will. And yes, I will go with you there. Dangerous, yes. Fearful or or scary, yes. Vulnerable I am. Insecure I am. I feel abandoned, isolated. But in the weakness... God is strong. And God says, I will go with you. So it is not 70 who are going with Jacob. It's really 71. God is with him. God will go with Jacob into the furnace. Into this place of affliction. He will go with Jacob there. And and that is why 400 years later, when the cries of God's people begin to arise to God, He hears them. And He hears them because He's never left them. Oh, he He had been silent for 400 years, but He's not been absent. God was with His people. Don't go anywhere unless you know God is with you. He will go down with him. But God also promises, I will go down with you. And I will also bring you back up again. What a glorious promise. Saints, do you hear the great determination of God? I will go down with you and I will bring you up again. Uh, You fear that your family will be lost. I'll bring them up. Uh, You feel that the identity of your people will be lost. I will bring them up. You fear the promise will fall down to the ground and die. No. The seed must fall in order for it to break forth and rise. The promise and the people will go down to Egypt, but God will bring them up and Joseph's, Jacob's bones and Joseph's bones will be buried with their fathers because God has said he will bring them up again. And it's the same with all of God's people. In all of the down to Egypt's that we have in our lives, God has promised for those who are His that He will be there. That He will go down with us into affliction. And that He will go up with us again. It's true. It's true that when the great enemy, death, comes in the end, the great Egypt that all of us must go down into, that God has promised that He will go down with us even to the grave and that He will bring us, surely bring us up again. Why? Because it's true of Christ. Christ has gone down. Christ has gone down into Egypt as a child to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. 
his true son, his faithful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greater fulfillment of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. And God was with Christ when he went down into the grave. God raised Christ from the dead and brought him up again. And because God has done so for Christ, he does so for all of the people of Christ, you and I. And it's beautiful, isn't it, that God says to Jacob and there, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph will close your eyes. Isn't that endearing? The greatest fear this old man ever had was losing his son. And yet God has turned his greatest fear into his greatest comfort and consolation. Joseph, the Savior of Israel will close the eyes of his father. You almost remember the first time when God called Jacob and said, Jacob, you worm, fear not. Let's move to the third. These will be shorter. Israel's departure from Canaan, beginning in verse 5. So Jacob hears the word of God and, and he goes. And he goes by faith, not by feeling. He has feelings, but the feelings are not the basis of his going. It's God's word. God has said, go. And he has went. Circumstances were right, but it was God's word that caused him to go. He's waited to hear what God will say. And he is willing to do whatever God tells him to do. There's no more hesitation. God's word is enough. And so he... And his whole family go. The family follows him. Uh, He does not follow his children per se, but his children follow their father. Um, Quick point, but parents lead your children. Lead them in the, the way of righteousness so that they will follow you. And they all go. And there are decades and years of difficulties. And yet, there are 70 who go. 70 who follow him. Why the number 70? It is is because 70 is a number of completeness. 10 is a number of completeness. And 7 is a number of completeness. And so, 7 times 10 is a number of completeness times completeness. It is a totality. It's all the people. And there is something here that God is saying. There are 70 people. When was the last time in the book of Genesis that we saw the number 70? It was at the Tower of Babel when there were 70 nations who gathered to exalt their name and not the name of God. And now here is God saying, here, here are my 70. Here is my 70 that I will raise to be a great nation who will exalt the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They will worship God. And God has promised that out of Abraham, nations will come. Kings and queens will come out of you. They will be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. But Abraham and and Sarah had no children. And then God gives them a child. And then God says, offer this child. Sacrifice him to me. And it would seem so unlikely that this promise of a nation would come to pass. And then we have decades later, and, and here is Jacob with 70 children. And they are small. But 400 years later, they will be up to maybe 2 million people. And you can see that they are a nation that is, that is growing and rising and, and they can look around and say, look at what God has done. But that's nothing. Because a few thousand years later, at Pentecost, God will use twelve men and from the twelve men on one day call men to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ and thousands will come into the kingdom of God as sons and daughters of Christ. 
And it has been now 2,000 years since Christ has ascended. And there are, I believe, billions. I believe heaven will be filled with a number that no man can count of billions who are sons and daughters of Abraham. Praise be to God. Sons and daughters. And we can look around and say, look at what God has done. Can you imagine that great day? That great day when you see a sea of people drive to the Pacific, down PCH1. Look at the ocean, the endlessness of the ocean. Ralph remembers Ventura. He wished he was, he was there now. You remember that you see the endlessness of the ocean. Imagine that blue being a sea of people. And they are all calling upon the name of God. And they are your brothers and they are your sisters. And God will bring you here and you will live with them here. And we will live on an earth where there is no sin, where every man knows God, where we are his people and he is our God. Look at what the Lord has done. Oh, we need to hurry, don't we? Number four, Israel's dwelling in Egypt. It's a land of plenty. It's a land of plenty. The storehouses have been opened to them and Joseph has the keys. (laughs) They go to Goshen. It's a fertile land. But it's a land of safety. It's a land of quarantine. You see, Joseph said to his brothers, tell Pharaoh when you stand before him that you're shepherds. Because Egyptians despise and loathe shepherds. What's Joseph's intention? Was he lying? No, they are shepherds. But why does he need them to say this? It's so that they can be isolated from the Egyptians. So that they can grow as a nation, not in the nation's capital of Egypt, but in the surrounding areas that belong to Egypt. Areas that Egyptians would not go to. Because they despise shepherds. They see them as lowly peasants and want nothing to do with them, with their high-minded society. Joseph is saying, Pharaoh will give you Goshen. It will be your land. You can grow there. You can flourish there. You will be isolated from the sins and from the idolatrous nature, nature of Egypt. You as a nation will grow and thrive there. Do you see that God removed Israel from Canaan because Canaan was getting into Israel. Israel was not getting into Canaan. The Israelites and the Canaanites were beginning to intermingle and intermix, which was causing pagan idolatry to be introduced into the the people of Israel. And God was saying, I need to get my people out of here and bring them into a land of quarantine so that they can grow and flourish and worship me alone because if they stay in Canaan, they will fall away. And so Joseph says, tell them your shepherds and he'll send you to to Goshen. They are going to eat the fat of the land being given the best of the land. They are in the world, but not of the world. And it is who the church must be today. Christ is the great shepherd. He is the one that the world wants nothing to do with. And we are the sheep of his pasture. And there is a danger today that we become like the world, like Canaanites, in our thinking, in our actions, in our appearance, in our pursuits, in our desires. And the danger is that Canaan or the world can tell no difference. I encourage you, saints, be a city on a hill. Be salt. 
be light in this dark world. You are clearly marked out if your faith is in Christ as being holy and set apart. Egypt is not your home. Don't get comfortable here. We are traveling to a different place. Our citizenship is in heaven. And finally, in conclusion, Israel's dream comes true. Let's read this and and close this morning. Uh, Verse 28 and 30. Now he sent Judah before him to go to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. There's something there as well you should read into. And they came to the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went into into Goshen to meet his father Israel. Let me slow down. And as soon as he appeared before him, He fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die. Since I have seen your face, you are still alive. It was his dream. I will go down and see Joseph before I die. So he goes to Egypt. It's just a moving time. And Joseph keeps up his appearance of the Egyptian governor. He comes in his chariot. He's dressed like an Egyptian. But when he sees his father, he's little Joseph all over again. All the prestige is set aside. Though he is governor, this is my daddy. I haven't seen him in 22 years. Oh, he thought I was dead. I thought he might be dead. I haven't seen him since I was 17, and now I'm almost 40 years old. What a moving scene it is. There there are tears. And the the Bible says that they embraced, and, and if you can imagine a hug where... Your face is in someone's neck and their face is in your neck and you're just embracing and crying. And the scriptures say that they did this for a long time. How long? I want you to think about this. Think about the person who has gone, they've passed. And now imagine that you are able to get a moment to just embrace them. How long would you embrace them? Would you let go? Now you get it. Okay, now you get it. See, we can read these things sometimes and just read them. But now you're thinking of one that if you were in his shoes, you would say, and I would never let him go. I would never let her go. I would hold him and hold her. And you would say like he said, now I can die. Now I can die in peace. And we're reminded of what this will be like when you see Christ. And then when he says to you, and join the saints, and you will see that one that you love. Go embrace him. And let me say to you, there will not be tears of sadness. There will be no tears. It will only be joy. It will be laughter. It will be dancing in circles. It will be shouts of praise. Joseph is alive. But more than that, Jesus is alive. Now let me die in peace since I have seen his face. He sees it now. Israel sees it all now. He understands now. 
That little boy who came out and said, I had a dream, I had a dream. What's your dream? Now it makes sense. Now the bowing and the sheaves and the stars, now it all makes sense. But it wasn't Jacob's dream come true. It was Joseph's dream come true. He sees it all. There was a man who sat at the the temple in the New Testament. And he sat there every single day because God says, I will promise you this. You will see with your eyes the salvation of my people with your own eyes. And I will not take your life until you do. And then one day, in his old age, imagine day after day, he goes and he sits and he waits and he waits. And children pass by. Is that the one? That's not the one. Then all of a sudden, this little girl and her husband, they walk into the temple and he stands up. This old man at attention and says, Lord, is this the one? And he goes and he sees and he says, Now mine eyes have seen the salvation of Israel. Now your servant can die in peace. It's what faith does. Faith gives you sight to see. I see Christ. I see God's salvation. I didn't see it before. But now I see it was like Jesus was dead. But now I see all along what he's been doing. Now I can die in peace. My friend, I pray that in all the sermons that you've been hearing for the last three years in Genesis, that you can say, I see it now. I see it now. I see the greater son. I see his salvation. I see and now I am ready to die in peace. Christ has gone down, down, down to earth. Egypt, if you will. But with all the purpose to save many lives, to bring about a great deliverance, I see how he was wrapped in cruel chains, how he went down to very prison of death itself, to the very grave itself. But I see now what God was doing the whole time. God was with him the whole time. Christ did not fear to go down to this world, did not fear to go down to Calvary, did not fear to go down to the grave. Because of his union with the Father and Spirit, he would go down, but he would surely be brought up again. And do you see that? That he is alive, that he has risen, that he has all authority in all creation, that he has a tremendous storehouse of blessing, and he has the keys to it. And he says, come, receive. Oh, let me say to you, then now let me die in peace. For I see him who I thought was dead, and he is alive forevermore. Let's pray.